0: Our scripture text is 1 Samuel chapter 7. I will read verses 2 through 4 and then 12 and 13. You can find it in your bulletin or certainly in the Pew Bible or your own. 1 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jearim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So what happened to the people of Israel? What led them to a 20-year lament What led them to this place where Samuel comes back on the scene and says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah among you, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. What happened to them? At some point, the people of God, this nation of Israel had moved away from truly serving the Lord only. At some point marked in history, A man, a group of men, women, a group of women, people, a group of people said, I am not going to keep my eyes fixed on the Lord. I'm going to turn my eyes towards these other things. And in this particular case, it was two gods, little g. The gods were the Ashtoreth and Baal, these two fertility gods representing the male and the female. And in turning their eyes towards them, a very wicked idolatry began to form. An idolatry that was so vile and so provocative in its sexual nature that I cannot go into much more detail than that in a service like this. The extreme vulgarity of what they participated in moved moved them to a place where their entire body, physical, physical, their emotional life, their intellectual life was consumed by the sin. They believed that if they engaged in in certain activities, which were very just vile, that it would appease the gods and cause them to respond by blessing them. What they were engaged in is really hard for us to even imagine human beings could be a part of. Essentially, it would be like taking a brothel and putting it in a sanctuary Or actually a sanctuary becoming a brothel. And that is happening amongst the people in open everywhere. That's what happened to the people of Israel. They took their eyes off of God. Off of his word. At some point in history. It's a marked moment. And they begin to worship these gods. The consequences of that were born. Suffering. God's hand being lifted off. Taking them to a place where over a 20-year period, they began to lament after the Lord. That's what Paul preached on last week. From this place of lamenting, Samuel comes back on the scene. And as he does each time, he brings the mercy of God and the holiness of God. And he says to them, if you, this is verse 3, "...if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, the asterisk from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only." And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. That was their enemy. And so what we have before us in the Old Testament is a tremendous pattern of repentance. I want to talk about that word in just a minute. But before I do, I want us to move away from this idea of the Ashtoreth and Baals, these fertility gods. And what I want us to do is move to a place where we, even in this moment, at 1141 a.m. on October 14th would be willing to say, well, these are the gods that I'm serving, little g. Because my dear friends, no matter who you are and no matter how mature you are in Christ, whether you're a seeker or you've known the Lord a long time, the temptation for you, just as it is for me, is to take your eyes off of the Lord and to put them on little g's, little gods, And it happens just as it did to Adam and Eve when the enemy moves in and says, did God really say? And so just like the people of Israel at a marked moment in history, someone among them or a group of them said, I'm not sure he, the living God, is the answer. I'm not sure we really will be ultimately secure in him. Have you seen these gods that these other nations are worshiping? I think that might be where we will find our safety, our security, our pleasure, our peace. And there they go, like a flock moving towards that idol worship. This morning, every one of us have been faced with temptations Seeking to turn our eyes off of the living God, off of the glory of God, off of his holy word, and to fix them on little G's. So I want to go through a list. And as I go through a list, what I really want to happen today, and what I'm praying would happen, is that we as his people would be humble enough to say, Holy Spirit, would you show me, just as David prayed, search me and know me, is there any part of my life that is offensive to you? Is there any part of my life where I'm reluctant to repent? Maybe for you, it's appearance. Maybe you give significant time consumed by your physical appearance, looking in the mirror, thinking of ways in which you might enhance your own physical beauty. Why? Perhaps deeper than that, it's, it's the fear of man, which most of us experience, the longing to be praised by man, to be respected. We care a lot about our reputation and how we look, not only in the flesh, but also on the images that go out over the internet. Maybe it's materialism, greed, consumption, comfort, just never really having enough, always wanting more. Maybe the little God for you is control. I want control. I want to control the calendar. I want to control my children, I want to control my work, I want to control my church, I want to control, it's just everywhere. Maybe for you it's, it's lust. There's a deep-rooted lust in your heart that's manifesting itself in profound ways, and the temptation, and then the surrender to that temptation to look at images on your phone, or your laptop, or your iPad, or whatever it is, overwhelms you. And there another idol was revealed, again, the fear of man. I can't tell anybody I'm struggling with this because they're going to look at me and judge me. Maybe there you struggle with comparison, just the continual reality of comparing you, your family, your marriage, your work, your stuff to other people. Maybe your idol is your children. Well, that doesn't sound bad, does it? But all of a sudden their happiness is the most important thing to you. Even if it means beginning to compromise the standard which you were fairly committed to a long time ago. But now you can't hold that standard because it's not reality in your mind. Maybe it's religion. How could that be bad? Well, you come not so much as a worshiper, but a critic. You come not so much to be transformed, but to be informed. You come seeking to earn your way to heaven through self-righteous acts as opposed to humble helplessness of saying, God, Have mercy, God have mercy. Maybe it's politics, especially now, this season, the Super Bowl, in some ways, these midterm elections, and you're focused on getting the right person there. And if we don't get the right person there, well, was God not sovereign? And suddenly you find yourself saying, I'm putting my trust in a man or a woman who will make it to an office. And your time is spent more in that arena than the work of the gospel. Maybe it's your work and you're consumed by it. Maybe you even think of workaholism as a virtue, though you know it's ridiculously affecting your family. Maybe it's an addiction and the common sense with alcohol or other drugs. Or maybe it's a different kind of an addiction where you just sit mindlessly in front of the TV, a process addiction, just watching stuff over and over and over again. And maybe for you, you're not just watching endless amounts of TV. But the stuff that you're letting into your life, letting your eyes see and hear is so coarse and it's joking and you don't even blush. What's on there is sick and vile and yet we just send it to one another and giggle. I am talking to my older kids about this because it's wicked, it's wretched. Their eyes need to be open to see. Right now, some of you are like, I don't like that. I don't like where he's going. This isn't much fun. Why is he talking about repentance? Well, I'll tell you why I'm talking about repentance. It's a biblical word. It's a word that's used a lot in the Bible. But I know that the church today, when we think of the word repentance, we have negative thoughts. Your fear is that I'm going to stand up here and start yelling, repent! Repent! And then I might move from here to the corner of Wycliffe and Oakland, repent! Or I might move from there to some other part of the city that we know is really disgusting and say, repent! You're going to hell, repent! And we might flood the streets with pamphlets that say the very same thing. And the reason we think that way is because that's what the church at times has done. And I think it's been atrocious. Repent simply means to change. It means to turn away from something that God in his profound, infinite wisdom said, don't do. Don't do for my glory and your good. Don't do. It means turning away. But it also means turning towards. And our impression of repentance really is centered just on the first part. So that when somebody even begins to use the word, it sounds negative. It's not. It's one of the most beautiful words given to us in Scripture because it's actually about life and death. It is about, and we confessed it earlier, a man or a woman coming to, to Christ in the initial repentance and dying to self. Second Corinthians 5, Therefore, if I, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's about dying to that which will kill us ultimately forever and then being born into new life. It's both. Until a person experiences the joy of repentance and moves from just the grief and the shame, true repentance hasn't happened. So the word repentance is not negative. It's not bad. It's, it's beautiful and it's important. Here's why. Jesus begins his Public ministry after John the Baptist begins him. And how do both of them begin? They both say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. From Matthew to Revelation, that is the message of the gospel. Repent, turn, turn away, turn towards. Martin Luther. 501 years ago, wrote his 95 theses. Do you know what the first one says? Listen, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's the number one of his 95. The life of a Christian is to be a life of, of repentance, a life of knowing the word and seeing what's wrong and saying, God, give me the power to turn. And then turning away, we turn to life in Christ and begin to experience the joy of what it means. But here's what I think has happened. In the church, words like repentance don't sound that comforting or socially acceptable. And so what happens is we begin to distance ourselves from using a word like that. And the danger of doing that is we soon find ourselves distancing ourselves from the action. Like how many Sundays do you enter into this sanctuary? And how many times do you enter into your small group, whether it's a youth small group or a senior adult small group or a midlife small group or a women's Bible study or a men's Bible study? How many times do you enter in saying, something will be revealed to me today that I need to repent of? Do you come into this sanctuary Sunday after Sunday going, I know that I'm going to hear something that I need to repent of. Again, turn away from and turn towards. It should be every Sunday. And so this morning what I'm praying is that you and I, the whole body of PCPC, will ask the Holy Spirit at this time, October 14th, 2018, to mark a moment where he gives us something. Something on that list or something I didn't list where we know he's saying, turn. Turn away from that. Turn towards God. Turn towards his mercy. Turn towards his glory. Turn towards his beauty. And what's before us in Samuel is that pattern. Repentance involves three aspects. It's something that happens not only once in our life. There is the initial repentance of coming to faith, but then beyond that, there is the life of repentance that Martin Luther was talking about. It's a life every day of repentance, of turning and turning. It involves three aspects. First is the intellectual aspect. The people of Israel knew something of the word of God. They knew that they were to love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. So at whatever point in history, one of them, or five of them, or 50 of them said, you know what? I'm going to turn towards the Ashtoreth. I'm going to turn towards Baal. They begin to follow. And suddenly a crowd of people are involved in sexual activity that is beyond description. It's wicked. It's vile. And there they are consumed physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally in this very dark process of trying to get these gods to do what they wanted them to do. They knew it was wrong, but intellectually they had forgotten about the holiness of God that he set apart. And intellectually they had forgotten about the mercy of God. And so here, when it wasn't working, suddenly there's a turn. Someone says, we've turned away. We must turn back. And as they do, Samuel comes again on the scene. And he says, If this is true repentance, if you truly are seeking to return to the Lord with all your heart, then this is what it looks like it's in the mind. You know what the truth is, you seek the truth. But it's not just in the mind, it's also in the heart. It's not just intellectual, it's also emotional. Did you see what Samuel said? If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So repentance involves the mind, but it also involves the heart. The heart is the place of our tears. It's the place of a godly sorrow. David represents that when confronted by Nathan And in his sorrow, he cries out to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And he turns. There's godly sorrow. But there's also a worldly sorrow. And a worldly sorrow is not overcome with grief towards offending a holy, righteous God. But a worldly sorrow is just fearful of the consequences, saddened by the consequences of the sinful choices. Repentance is not about worldly sorrow. It is about godly sorrow as we think about what we sang earlier, power of the cross, what Jesus went through for us. But true, wholehearted repentance is not just intellectual, and it's not just emotional. It is also volitional. What that means is it moves towards action that can be marked. It moves towards action that can be seen. It moves towards decisions that people make in order to mortify the flesh in order to really battle against those sins that are consuming them. So if someone is sinfully anxious, there's a type of anxiety that is understandable and then there's a type that isn't, that's really centered in distrust and constant fear. If there is gossip that's present, there is a type that is, well, there's no type that's good. And so if that's a pattern in your life and you know it intellectually and you feel it in your heart, you have to change. What does that volition look like? What does that evidence look like? Well, here, the people of Israel tells us in verse four, the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they serve the Lord only. I want you to understand something. It's real easy to look back at the people of Israel and go, what in the world were you doing? Well, Well, don't do that without going to the mirror and looking at yourself listening, whatever the Holy Spirit has put before you and say, what in the world are you doing? You see, it's hard. For the people of Israel to turn away from that which involved them physically, involved their loins, their glands, involved their whole body, their their soul intertwined, it was sick. And so for them to suddenly say, I don't want to participate in that pleasure anymore. I want to distance myself from that level of depravity. It was a hard and difficult repentance. But God has the power to turn us away and to turn us towards. You may be thinking right now, that's impossible for me. I could never do it. Well, that's true. But it's not impossible for God. So repentance involves the intellect. It involves the emotions, the heart. But it also is volitional. There's a measured evidence that a person has repented. Is it perfection? No. We're never going to be perfect the side of heaven. That's why we need Christ, and Christ covers us. Some of you right now are thinking, Mark's sounding more legalistic than I've ever heard him. Truth is, you don't understand legalism. Legalism is only how we view the way God views us. If I think if... I repent, that changes God's view of me, in other words, he accepts me based on the level of my repentance, that's legalism. Or if I say God changes his view of me based on what I don't do, that's legalism. Seeking to bring God glory with the way I live, the way I turn away from and turn towards him, that's called holiness. That's called a desire for righteousness that's honorable and the word of God tells us that we should seek to live that kind of life if I try to do it in my own power then I'm probably trying to earn my way to heaven that's legalism seeking to rid ourselves from the things that wage war against our soul is not legalism unless we think it changes our identity in Christ I hope that's clear but true repentance reveals true fruit Here's what I mean. A few weeks ago, I called an old friend. We hadn't touched base in a while. He's a youth pastor in Nebraska. We talked, just catching up like we normally do. I said, tell me something that's encouraged you in ministry. He's my age, still serving as a youth pastor very faithfully. He says, hey, you gotta gotta hear this story. I was having lunch with a kid and we're talking and I've been meeting with him a long time and he tells me again of his struggle with pornography. And I said, well, what what are you doing? The kid clearly knows intellectually it's wrong. And he knows in his heart it grieves God, but it hadn't really moved to being volitional until this moment. And in this moment, the boy reveals, I love God more than I love this sin. I wanna please God more than I wanna please myself, but I'm trapped And I've tried, and I've got covenant eyes, and I've got these things, but I know how to get around them. I'm stuck. I can't do anything about it. My friend just looks at him, and the boy takes out his iPhone, and he drops it in his cup of water, full of water, and says, I'm done. That's volitional. That is a young Christian boy saying, I've had enough of this battle. This device is killing me. It's literally killing me. I won away from it. Now, here's why that's so powerful. He put away his ashtoreth. He put away his Baal. It's measured. It's marked. It was born out of an intellect that said, God's word says it's wrong. It was born out of a heart for God that says, I know it's wrong. And he did something, and it was marked. And it's a pretty profound mark because now the 17-year-old has to go home. And he has to tell his parents. I don't have a phone. It doesn't work anymore. Well, why doesn't it work? We need to talk. And what I need to tell you is that I can't resist looking at things that I can see on that. It's too much for me. And how will the parents respond? I don't know how they responded, but how would you respond? How would you respond when the young boy says, dad, I need a flip phone. Son, if you have a flip phone, you're going to be made fun of. If you have a flip phone, people are going to know you got a problem. When we love God more than we care about what other people think about us, we're willing to drop things like that in the water and say, I'm done. Men, some of you need a flip phone. What idol's coming up now? The fear of what other people would think as you flip it open. Or the freedom of, maybe that would really help me not look at stuff. Women, some of you need a flip phone too. Or maybe you just need to turn your computer off. Or say, you know what? I'm not looking at all of these images of these perfect pictures of my friends who took the perfect vacation. I'm not going to do that anymore. Because that's your asterisk. That's your bail, and it's killing you. And it's a little g, and it will. Repentance is beautiful because it takes us to a place of saying, I'm turning away from that which won't give me life, and I'm turning towards the one who does. And he's beautiful, and he's glorious, and his greatness is unsearchable. And I am his. And every Sunday that we gather for worship, we should expect that to happen. And every time you enter into your small group, you should expect that to happen. But here's the reality. Just like the people of Israel, things get marked in our life where corporately we begin to say that's normal and that's okay. Just like the people of Israel did. It's called by Jerry Bridges, cruise control Christianity and everybody seems to be okay with this type of sin and everybody seems to be okay with this type of sin and we hit cruise control what the Holy Spirit is saying today is hit the brakes turn get out of that cruise control lane and seek the Lord turn away turn towards now I want to give you a picture of this as we get ready to close. So just be still for a couple more minutes. At the end of this text, we see that Samuel has built an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a stone of help. It's a reminder. And in doing so, he's reminded people that as he prayed for them, that the Lord has delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. And Samuel said, till now the Lord has helped us. And Ebenezer is a reminder. And Ebenezer is something we look at and say, the holy God was faithful to us. He showed us mercy. And as Christians, we need those Ebenezers, those moments when we can have a marked presence of his faithfulness and leading us to a place of repentance, of turning away and turning towards. The greatest Ebenezer we have is the cross. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, turning our eyes towards Him. Because when we do, we see His faithfulness, we see His beauty, and the things of earth, the little G's, grow strangely dim. The person who taught me the most about repentance is my mom in two specific ways. First, she started smoking when she was 13. Intellectually, back then, they didn't all know it was dangerous. But soon it became intellectually true that it is. But she didn't stop. Not until she was 58. I grew up breathing in lots of smoke. Secondhand. So significant was that, that if I walk into a restaurant today and there's smokers, I feel it quickly. She smoked all the time. Until she got cancer. And the cancer was up above the roof of her mouth. And the only way to get it out was to remove the roof of her mouth, extract the cancer, do all the treatment that was necessary, and then restore with lots of surgeries. But she quit smoking cold turkey. She would tell you to the day she died, I would love another drag. But she intellectually knew, in her heart knew, and volitionally quit. But there's another story that showed her Repentance. Not long before she died, she was having health issues that she didn't want to admit. She was blacking out. She didn't want to admit it. But she came to a place where she could no longer deny it. And it was a place on 36th in Ann Arbor in Oklahoma City. She pulled into a parking lot where she goes to get her hair done. She parks in front of an art studio next door to her salon. And as she parks, before she can put it in park, she passes out. She's not out very long. But when she wakes up, she has hit the accelerator and is driven through the front window of this art studio with people all around her. In utter horror and shock, she turns hard left and drives out the side of the building. A massive hole the size of her Honda CRV is present with bricks all around. She survives, no one is hurt. God's profound mercy. But in that moment, as the paramedics come, they say, you've got a heart issue. We need to take you to the hospital. She didn't want to go because she didn't want to hear she had a heart issue, but she didn't have a choice. And upon hearing what her heart issue was, it was a very minor procedure that would keep her from ever blacking out again. What's amazing about that story is God's mercy. What's amazing about that story is my mom's unwillingness to be checked out when all the signs of needing to turn away were there. What's amazing about that story is that every time I drove by it over an 18-month period, that wall had a temporary fix, and the pile of bricks remained outside. As it was all in the courts. And every time I looked at that pile of bricks, that Ebenezer I remembered God's faithfulness to my mom. My friends, you and I are in constant need of the Holy Spirit to say, I love you, the Father loves you, the Son loves you, turn away. And as you turn away in my power, turn towards. And the sign that this repentance is real will be your grief over your sin, your joy and gratitude over the cross, and a life that looks different because in my power, the Holy Spirit says, you have made choices that will affect your ability to turn away. The boy dropping his phone in the water is a profound picture. What is the Lord bringing to your heart today? Just one thing, ask him and ask him to give you the grace to fight against it in his power for his glory. And then he's going to bring another one and another one. Do you know why? Because the life of a believer is a life of repentance. And the word repentance is beautiful. Jesus, thank you for your grace. We're grateful for your work, Holy Spirit. And as we sing... Let us pray these words that you might do the work that only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.